Welcome to the Backyard Professor Videos Live. I've got a very interesting program for you today. I'm looking very forward to sharing the ideas of John Lennox. Let me show you John real quick. John is the Professor Emeritus of Mathematics at the University of Oxford and Emeritus Fellow in Mathematics and the Philosophy of Science at Green Templeton College. In addition to academics works, he has published several books on the relationship between science and Christianity. He has internationally lectured and participated in a number of televised debates with some of the world's leading atheist thinkers, including Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Peter Singer, and Peter Atkins. So I've got slides I'm going to show you today, so I might be a little choppy. Just bear with me as I learn how to do this. Let's get this show on the road. Okay, I've got a couple of items I want to share with you first. Coming out of me, the Mormon apologetic uh, situation after 40 years of, of that involvement, uh, I learned what to think, but I never really learned how to think. And that has become a critical aspect of my particular worldview. And, and so the, I share that with you in these videos uh, we have got to learn how to think. Now, I suspect that the majority of my audience here has uh, learned what to think coming from Mormonism or Christianity or Islam or whatever religion you've come from, If in case you're transitioning. And we don't want to waste any more time being told what to think. And yet I found that in jumping into atheism for a few years and studying their literatures and trying to grasp their worldview, that they also are trying to teach us what to think, and not nearly as much as how to think, especially the new atheists. And in this, they shoot themselves in the foot. So John Lennox, my, uh, my research today is going to share with you John Lennox's ideas. He is a phenomenal debater. He has debated many, many times, and they're all on YouTube. He has published hundreds of YouTube videos. So what I have done, this video is his ideas and his thought. Uh, I have taken bits and pieces of his ideas from numerous videos. I put them in the description below 
in the uh, uh, this video. And I am sharing his worldview and his approach on how do we clear up the muddy waters. Um, there are too many people who have learned what to think in the world in the discipline of religion. And as much as we've hated it from that, to now think that, ah, at last, now we're going to learn how to think by studying the atheists and scientists. It's unfortunate that I'm finding that that is not necessarily the case, and that is what I want to do this video on. It will probably end up being somewhat controversial. That's how this works. So I'm going to discover with you some information that I believe is very, very useful. So we do science with our mind. It's not right for us right now to worry about thinking about the philosophy of, of science and all that jazz, but let's just look at the fact that we can do science with our mind. Now, one of the greatest evidences that nature is not all there is, is the fact that we can do science. And this is so important because science is such an integral part of our culture, of our society, and of our personal lives. I'm right here right now making a video on a computer, right? So when we look at the idea of the science of explanation, what does that mean? What does that do? Now, we're all familiar with the internal combustion engine of the automobile. And we know the science of heat and pressure and chemistry. And these combine to explain the internal combustion engine. And that means that we have a choice. Science or Henry Ford? One or the other of the explanations describe that internal engine. And that's absurd, right? <laughs> it's not an explanation of one versus the other. That's not what we're up against at all in this particular debate. You need both of those explanations, don't you? I think so. This is quite important because we realize that explanation comes in different kinds. If you want a complete explanation of the Ford Mustang, you have to have the long mechanism explanation. In other words, the scientific one, of course. But you have to have an agent explanation in terms of Henry Ford. And notice that these two explanations don't contradict each other at all. So one of the ideas or a Dawkins meme, a Richard Dawkins meme that's out there floating around is that you must have either or. That's nonsense. Because the existence of a mechanism that does something is not in itself an argument for the non-existent of an agent who designed that mechanism. Now that makes sense. So I don't, in looking at science, I don't necessarily see a competition happening here at all. The theme that really builds here is God is not a God of the gaps. The more I study, the more the genius of God comes out. We must not assume that there's only ever one level of explanation.
because it's not science versus God. The God of the atheists talk about, that's the God of the gaps. And I'll explore that a little bit down the road here. And very interestingly here, oh, where is it? I've got this somewhere. I thought I had this in, in uh, order, but I don't. Okay, here we go. The lightning God. We learn of lightning and that God disappears. Now, the more science learns, then the less room there is for God, if that is the God of the gaps, without question. And so we have to be very careful in trying to define God. But the Bible doesn't teach this kind of God, according to John Lennox, in the very first line of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? He is the God of the whole show, not just this bit here or that part there or maybe one or two of those laws, but not other laws. No, he's the God of the whole show. All things were made by him, according to both Genesis and the Gospel of John. So the faith that's involved here is not just the religious faith. It's faith in science as well. And he explains this very well. Einstein saw it. So did Eugene Wigner, author of a significant paper in 1961, The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics. His idea that he explores in this fascinating paper is, how is it that this bright college professor scientist, this mathematician, this scholar, how is it that she comes up with equations in her mind that actually describe the universe out there. So what we have is, what is it in here that gets us to out there? How does that work? Now, that's a remarkable idea here. And then Einstein to say the only incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible. That's pretty important uh, when you stop and think about it. Now, Charles Darwin, he said something phenomenally interesting. With me, without a doubt, always arises whether the convictions of man's minds that have been developed from the minds of lower animals are of any value or are at all trustworthy. Would anyone trust the convictions of a monkey mind if there are any convictions in such a mind? Now, this is actually being seriously considered philosophically today because of the way that science has been going. Because now there are many people hold that the driving force of natural processes that eventually produce our cognitive faculties, they were not primarily concerned with the truth at all, but only with survival. And we all know what happens to truth when people and nations motivated by what Dawkins calls their selfish genes feel themselves threatened in the struggle for survival. 
See, they think thought is basically some neurological, biological phenomenon. From evolutionary biology, the neurophysiology may be adaptive, but why for one moment think that beliefs caused by the neurophysiology should be mostly true? If the thoughts, as the chemist Holdine pointed out long ago, if the thoughts in my mind are just the motions of atoms in my brain, a mechanism that arises from a mechanism of unguided processes, then why on earth should I believe anything that my mind and brain says, even believe that it is made of atoms? Now, this is crucial to my mind. One of the American leading philosophers, Alvin Plantinga, he demonstrated that if Dawkins is right and we are the products of mindless, unguided processes, then he has given us strong reason to doubt the reliability of cognitive human faculties and so inevitably doubt the validity of any belief that they produce, including Dawkins' own science and his own atheism. Plantinga notes, Dawkins' biology and his belief in naturalism would therefore appear to be at war with each other in a conflict that has absolutely nothing to do with God. In other words, it is not irrational to believe in supernature. It is irrational to believe solely in nature. The atheist reductionism, it completely undermines the foundation of the very nature of the rationality needed to construct its arguments or of any other kind of argument whatsoever. The new atheist views are catastrophic for their views of science. Now, as Lennox powerfully points out, which is really interesting how he does this, my basic argument is this, and it is a scientific argument. I believe science makes sense as something we can do. Of course. And for that reason, I reject a naturalism that undermines the foundation of the rationality which I need in order to do my science. That makes lots of sense. The conflict, you see, is not between science versus belief in God. The Nobel Prize winners are atheists as well as Christians, believers in God. So it's not the science that these gentlemen are differing in. The conflict is between naturalism, materialism, and theism. The belief in naturalism, materialism, is that the universe is all that is.
It means that explanation is, by definition, reductionism. That is, it's from the bottom up. From simplicity to complexity. Because there is no transcendence, because there is no top down in the naturalistic viewpoint. That causation does not exist. Now, the Greeks, Democritus and Leucippus held this view, but also in the ancient Greek melting pot, you had Plato and Socrates and Aristotle, and they believed in more. They believed that there was a transcendence as opposed to other Greek streams of thought. And it's these two streams, the stream that it's only explainable from the bottom down and the explanation that, well, it can be explained from the top down. These have come all the way up through history. And these are the issues that divide us today, right now as a world and in our own society. So what we're talking about is worldviews. The belief systems, one of these is naturalism, and the other worldview is theism. Now, Lennox's debate with the world-renowned atheist Peter Singer, you have to watch that on YouTube. It is absolutely astonishing. It's amazing. Singer's objection was that Lennox just believed in the religious system into which he was born. You know, well, you were born an Irish uh, Christian, and therefore you've remained a Christian because of your birth. So Lennox asked Singer during the debate about his parents, he asked Peter, were your parents atheists? And he said, yes, especially his mother. So I said, that is, Lennox told him, oh, so you remained in the faith in which you were brought up too. And he said, oh, but it isn't a faith. And then Lennox said, oh, I was under the impression that you believed it. And Lennox knows that the cyber, the, the tens of thousands of people who are watching that on YouTube, man, it just lit up cyberspace, man. That caused quite a consternation. Because this is revealing for the attitude of the new atheists, is to regard religious faith as faith, and thereby, by definition, believing where there is no evidence. But atheism isn't a faith. And any philosopher can point out to them how trivial that is. It's very important that we are dealing with belief systems. And one belief system says the universe is the only ultimate reality, and this is a mass of energy. The other believes that God is the ultimate reality. So the kind of faith that the atheists are describing is blind faith, and Lennox says it's very dangerous. However, faith in the most ordinary sense of the word derives from the Latin word fides, and it simply means trust. And he expounds this. I will expound this also later. We don't trust the banks unless there's evidence that we can trust them right? So the banking crisis from 10 years ago absolutely taught us without question the difference in evidence-based faith and non-evidence-based faith. When we lost our trust in the banks, it froze the whole system because what happened? We pulled our money, of course. Absolutely. 
So Christianity is an evidence-based faith, according to Lennox. He says, the Gospel of John says, these things of Jesus are written so that you might believe. These things are written, here's your evidence, so that you might have trust, you might believe in what Jesus said and did. So John is showing you the evidence and saying, because of this, you can believe that. So that's what John Lennox meant. Now, the early men of science, uh, what they did is they had laws of nature, which they studied and believed, right? And in the process of studying and believing those laws, they felt like they could study those because from the laws, they believed in the lawgiver. And many of these early pioneers of science, the Galileos, the Keplers, the Newtons, the Descartes, the Boyles, the Maxwells, Babbage, and so on, these guys were all believers in God. The belief in God and supernature in the beginning were not incompatible with science from these early scientists, nor did it stop any of the phenomenal science that we have from 1500 to the 1800s. Indeed, they laid the foundation for our physics and for our chemistry and science that we use to this day. Their discoveries were utterly astonishing because they believed and they had faith in the intelligible universe. And what that meant, of course, is the same mind of the creator which produced the universe created them in his image with their own rational minds to look at the universe and so see the evidence of the creator. And they explored day and night, constantly, continually, trying to find, using their telescopes, they discovered the electricity, and they, of course, enlarged vastly our understanding of not only the Earth, but the cosmos, and how gravity worked, how the water cycles and the rock cycles of the Earth worked and all, because they believed in the intelligibility of nature. The belief was the engine for their discoveries. So the atheist paradigm appears to be that it is a mistake to think that there is anything more than the laws of nature in our day. And we do have a name for this. This is called scientism. That only science can give us the answers to everything. Isaac Newton argued and said, oh, hold on, I've got to get my picture of Isaac Newton here. Where are you, Sir Isaac Newton? Isaac Newton himself said that the law of gravity was evidence for God. Now, it's interesting that Stephen Hawking, who a couple of hundred years after Newton held Newton's chair, he argues that gravity is evidence that there isn't a God. The result of Hawking's attitude and of other atheists such as Lawrence Krauss and Richard Dawkins, etc., is that students and college professors are being told that they must now choose between science and religion and science and God. 
And yet, when we look back at the history of science in the previous 400 years, this didn't have to happen in order for those scientists to do really fabulous science. Newton's Principia Mathematica is arguably the greatest physics book ever written on the subject, and yet the basis of his discoveries, as he said in his Principia, is because of his belief in God. So this, fun, this phony choice, we have to ask, why does this phony choice matter so much to the atheists? The question presents itself to us. You want to be considered a serious intellectual. Then you must choose between science and God. But when we look at this, does this modern claptrap bogus view show Newton and Kepler and Galileo and Clerk Maxwell's science bogus and that these men were just mere nitwits? Of course not. But science hasn't forced this farce of a decision on us all. Scientism is the culprit here. That is the view that science is the only way to truth. Now, that is logical nonsense. And it's not anti-science to point that out. <laughs> because if that's true, the universities would have to drop half of their curricula. The humanities, the philosophy courses, the music, the art, etc. And none of them do that. And none of us want them to do that either. So that's an utterly ludicrous proposition. And then again, the statement that science is the only way to truth is not itself a statement of science. Now, many scientists know this statement is of a ridiculous belief statement of only some so-called scientists' belief. This is ugly scientific fundamentalism. Statements of scientists are not necessarily statements of science. Just because the scientist has spoken does not mean the thinking has been done. Carl Sagan, at the beginning of his fabulous series, Cosmos, which I'm sure we all watched back then, he said the universe is all there is, or was, or ever will be. Well, this is not a scientific statement. This is Sagan's atheistic, materialistic belief. It's not science. Now, science, of course, has great authority. I mean, after all, like Lennox says, it has produced the iPhone, right? So the cultural authority is really quite prominent in science. But that does not mean that that authority should flood into all other areas of our lives that have nothing to do with science. That's where we're making a gigantic error. This is just wrong to do. And in fact, Richard Feynman has a very spectacular point. Now, he was a Nobel-winning prize physicist. I would argue Feynman was one of the top 10 physicists in the history of physics. That's how prominent he was. And he said, when the guy goes out of his area of expertise, if the scientist does this, he is just as dumb 
as the next guy. Now that's pretty amazing. <laughs> wow. Einstein realized, of course, that when he wrote the scientist is, I have an Einstein. Here we go. Let me show this. The scientist is a poor philosopher because the point of the fact is, oh, let me turn off that banner real quick. The point of the fact is that science without religion is lame, crippled, lame. That's not a good status. Yet religion without science is blind. So there is an interrelationship here. People have come to think that scientism itself, this claim that science gives us all the answers, they say that is coextensive with rationality. But that's irrational thinking. It can't possibly be coextensive with reality like people want it to be. So moving on, let's take a look at putting the belief in God into the same category as they do with Santa Claus. And Lennox notes that he gets this in several debates that he uh, has with several different kinds of atheists, right? And this is so interesting because I keep being accused of believing in Santa Claus, you know, God, you know. And once in debating a physicist, he said the physicist did that. And Lennox said, I stopped him right there. I said, just hold on, hold on. Why don't we do an experiment? The physicist goes like this and he goes, yeah, let's put this question to the audience. So Lennox turns to the people and he said, how many of you began believing in Santa Claus as adults? And it was a large lecture hall. It had several thousand people. Not one hand went up. He said, well, in that case, ladies and gentlemen, how many of you as adults came to believe in God? And several hundred hands shot up. <laughs> and then he turned to his debater, and here's what he said. Please don't insult our intelligence some of the finest minds in all of history have spent several centuries and thousands of hours thinking about the majesty of God and the way in which understanding God fits into all the other disciplines. But they haven't done the same with Santa Claus. <laughs> so please don't insult our intelligence by putting him into the same category. Seriously. Bravo. That, that deserves a round of applause. Absolutely. It's time to put that childish, idiotic argument that's not an argument completely to bed. John Lennox just massacres that debater right there. I, I rather like that. So, anyway... Now, of course, what's remarkable is that the subtext of this entire idea of God is equal to Santa Claus comes from Freud. Yeah, so let's take a look at this. I think Lennox has something here when he noted this. The idea of this is that God is wishful thinking. And hold on, I've got to find my... Oh, where is it? Hold on, hold on. Okay, here we go. I've got it. 
This idea of God is wishful thinking in Freud's case. And this is going into psychology now. And of course, once you j jump into the psychology, it just wipes out the debate. You know, nobody wants to debate anymore. It, it, it bothers the debate. Now, the God delusion, this is the name, Richard Dawkins' book here, the God delusion, right? If I can move my fat fingers, <laughs> there we go. The God delusion. Now, delusion is a psychological, psychiatric term. Richard Dawkins is not a psychiatrist. So when he goes outside of his own field, when we check with the experts, we find out it's the atheists who have the delusion. Because none other than the very president of the Royal College of Psychiatry, the highest psychiatry authority in all of the UK says, the positive benefit of the belief in God is the best kept secret of psychology. And if the results of studies of studies, not just studies, have gone in the opposite direction, it would have made worldwide front page headlines. But because it doesn't, they keep it quiet. And Dawkins, deludedly, does not appear to know that. So we need to recognize the logic of the Freudian argument. And this is deeply flawed, and it was discussed by a German author by the name of Manfred Lutz. He makes the point in his book, The History of the Great One, if there is no God, Freud gives you a brilliant argument to demonstrate that faith in God is a delusion, a wish fulfillment, a father figure up there in the sky, daddy, if there is no God. Of course, he went on to say that if there is a God, then the atheism is a delusion. The delusory idea that we never have to meet God and give account of the mess that we've made of our lives and of others. And then he gets right to the base substance of the whole idea. As to the substantive question, whether there is a God or not, Freud can't help you. You're going to have to look elsewhere. <laughs> That's pretty important to grasp, right? So this is uh, this is showing us that uh, we have to be very careful when we discuss God under Freudian terms. Now, this is rather humorous. Stephen Hawking was once asked by one of the national British newspaper what he thought of religion. He said, religion is a fairy story for those people who are afraid of the dark. <laughs> and when they asked John Lennox to respond, he quipped with this one-liner, well, atheism is the fairy story of those people who are afraid of the light. <laughs> I, mean, I love this guy's wit and humor, you know, but he has a very good point here because neither one of these statements prove anything at all. It's just personal belief, right? 
And that's personal belief is not science. The problem is that Hawking and many others think of God as the Greek God, not the triune God of the Bible who made the entire universe. And now this is very interesting because he says that Hawking in his book, The Grand Design, oh, and I had it here. Where did I put it? Oh, I don't have it here now. I, I had set it aside so that I could show you. Well, anyway, it's in his grand design. I wanted to check Lennox out. I said, now, wait a minute. Let's make sure here that he's, he's describing Hawking correctly. So I looked in the grand design, and here's what I found personally. And you're welcome to look in it. He co-authored this with Leonard and now To set up Hawking's argument of the God of the gaps. Now, this occurred on pages 15 through pages 24 and 25. There, in those 10 pages, nine pages, we read about Viking myths. We read about Klamath Indians of Oregon myths. We read about Thales, Ionian science, Pythagoras, Archimedes, Anaximander, Empedocles, Democritus, Aristarchus, Epicurus. We read about the Stoics. We read about the Hindus. And we read about Aristotle. But nowhere in the grand design does Stephen Hawking mention the first line of the Bible or the Gospel of John. There, God is transcendent to the universe and Hawking is oblivious of that concept. Now, take this God of lightning idea. I had that wonderful little, uh, I love that. I love that <laughs> slide. There's your God of lightning. Another one of the God of the gaps the atheists keep invoking. Now, here she was a science stopper. And here's why. This God of the gaps is the science stopper. If you thought lightning was a god, well, I mean, the people would think, obviously, well, don't study it too hard because you might get the god upset, right? So you want to kind of tread carefully. And yet a simple course of science or whether at BYU will dismiss that god completely after just one semester's study. The Greek god of lightning is a so-called god of the gaps. I can't explain it, therefore God did it. See, this is, the, this is the type of explanation that is meant by the god of the gaps. So, here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. If that's what you think of God, then you've got to choose between science and God. Because that's how you've defined God. If you think of God as a God of the gaps in math, he becomes like the X, the placeholder in algebra, the unknown, right? And when science comes along and explains that issue better than that God, then of course, God is demoted and thrown out. But that's because of the way you've defined God. That's very profound. You've got to choose between science and God because 
That's the way you've defined him. Now, very interestingly here, one of the main problems that this debate has is that it is not about the definition of science. It's about the definition of God. Now, Lennox actually described in one of his videos how he pointed this out to Richard Dawkins, and it did not please Richard Dawkins, but who cares? You know, he's done enough to make everybody else mad, so it's time he gets a little dose of his own medicine. Here, here's what Lennox said. Well, the God you don't believe in, Richard, I don't either. And this is Lennox the Christian, right? So the first line in the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the bits of the universe that we don't understand. <laughs> no, of course not. It does not say that. What it does say is, it's a merism. And that has the meaning from the Hebrew is this is the whole show. Absolutely everything that we both do know and everything that we don't know, that's what the God of the Bible created. So when Newton discovered, and this is quite important, when Newton discovered his law of gravity, he didn't say, oh, fantastic, I have an explanation. I don't need God anymore. That was not what Newton said in his Principia. He said rather, oh, what a marvelous God to do it that way. Because you see, Newton, the more he understood the universe, the more he admired the genius of the God who actually made the universe with all of these laws and ways of interactions of matter. That impressed the genius Newton. That's the way our minds actually work. Now, when you stop and think about this, you go, hey, wait a sec, that's actually correct. And take engineering, for instance. Once you take a class of engineering, doesn't the internal combustion automobile engine really begin to get you impressed. It's ingenious. And I only had one semester of automotive uh, class in college, and I was blown away with the engine after just one semester. It's absolutely fabulous. Well, isn't the same thing with piano? When you start studying piano, and then you put up a piece of sheet music of Johann Sebastian Bach, or else you begin to listen to Johann Sebastian Bach play the piano, it absolutely blows you away. It is phenomenal. It's the same thing with painting. Now, I took painting. My grandfather lived with us the last few years of his life when I was a teenager. I used to draw a lot of cartoons and show them to him, and he'd laugh and slap his knee and all that. And he finally one day gave me a $100 bill, man. And he said, you are very good with art. You go take oil painting lessons. And you know, as a teenager, 16-year-old, that $100 is <laughs> mighty tempting, right? But I did that. I went and took oil painting lessons. And to this day, I cannot stop admiring the phenomenal beauty and power 
of clouds. Yeah, simple clouds in the sky. It's fantastic. It helped me appreciate nature. Trees, when I tried to paint trees. Mountains, water especially. Wow, I sucked at still life, but I love the, the landscaping and animals. So that is the way our mind works. That makes perfect sense as far as that's concerned. Choosing between science or God is simply an absurd argument. God does not disappear on the advance of science. In fact, it's rather the other way around. Now, we, the more we gain understanding of him, the more we know about the universe. And Kepler, Kepler now, <laughs> this is not a twit of a scientist, uh, he said, we are learning how to read the mind of God. We can almost think his thoughts. And because of his belief in that rational mind behind the universe, he discovered some very powerful planetary laws himself. Yeah, the ellipses of orbits and stuff. Well, this whole thing can be regarded as studying the nature of explanation. Science explains and now we have to ask, well, okay, science explains. What exactly uh, does that mean? I mean, let, let's take a look at this because I was told in school about the law of gravity. And it's wonderful, really. You show how the elliptical orbits of the planets go around the sun and all of this fabulous material and all of this movement in these laws came out of an equation with just eight symbols in it. it. It's just phenomenal. But does the law of gravity tell us what gravity is? It doesn't, you know. Nobody knows what gravity is. If you don't believe that, read Nobel Prize winning Richard Feynman, the great physicist, he'll tell you. See, we get into the way of thinking that when we see the words science explain something, that we're getting a total explanation, even within the realm of science. Well, we're not. The law of gravity is brilliant. It enables us to land people on the moon. But it doesn't tell us what it is. In fact, it was the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein who, mo who noted that The greatest defect of our modern era is that the laws of nature are explanations of the phenomenon of nature, and they're not. They are simply descriptions of what normally happens. So it means a law of nature only explains on a certain level. Uh, and now, what's interestingly is, we can get to the next step. And this is a great, important next step. Why is the water boiling? Hold on, let me get rid of that banner real quick. Why is the water boiling? Well... It's boiling because the heat energy from the Bunsen burner's flame is 
being conducted through the copper base of the kettle and the molecules of the water are getting agitated because the heat is transferring from the copper to the water. And so that's why it's boiling. And the fact is, that's just nonsense. The water is boiling because I want a cup of tea. <laughs> Fascinating stuff, though, isn't it? But actually, <laughs> let's take a look at this, though, because there's something profound going on here. Now, actually, think about it. Would you have ever said I was correct when I said nonsense before I told you why the water is really boiling? You wouldn't have, huh? You would have thought, oh, how anti-scientific can he possibly get, right? And yet, I was entirely correct. So what is this showing us? What are we learning from this that is so vital and this is so important? The thing it's showing us is two explanations are necessary for the boiling water and not just one. There's this scientific explanation, and there is the explanation of what we may call agent intent. I want a cup of tea, see? Now, when we stop and, and really observe this now, understand the physics explanation is important, but people have been brewing tea now for thousands of years before they knew anything about what heat was or how it operated, right? Actually, the brewing of the tea and the wanting of the tea is more important for most of us than not. Except for physics lab. You see the idea here, though. It would be utterly absurd to suggest that the scientific explanation tells you everything about the boiling water. It's utterly absurd to think that, oh, where's my, that science tells you everything about the universe. Oh, that's the wrong one. Sorry. Okay, I'll, I'll skip this. It's utterly absurd to think that science tells you everything about the universe. Oh, no, this is it. Science is no more in competition with God as explanation than the Ford internal combustion engine is in competition with Henry Ford as an explanation for the motor car. Now, that's remarkable. There is more than one kind of explanation is the point that Lennox drives home very succinctly. And the point is, God, despite Richard Dawkins, is not the same kind of explanation as science is. In fact, the philosopher Swinburne says that science explains. I postulate God to explain why science explains. When Laplace told Napoleon on being asked, where is God in his equations? He responded, I have no need of that hypothesis. And now we're told that there is the end of God. And that's absurd. <laughs> that's utterly ridiculous. He said the truth to Napoleon. When you're dealing with the equations, you don't discuss God. 
And Lennox talks about this. And I can testify to you, too. When I was studying algebra and trigonometry and geometry a few years back, trying to brush up my mathematics, well, I never invoked God in my math either. So what? That has nothing to do with it. And this other issue, issue he says, when the Higgs boson was discovered just a few years back, Lawrence Krauss, the particle physicist or theoretical physicist, wrote a little article to say that the Higgs boson was arguably more important than God. <laughs> Such a twit argument, right? <laughs> but arguably more important than God for what? Well, Certainly, if you're doing atomic physics, then the Higgs boson is more relevant than God, of course. But if you're asking why is there a universe at all in which particle physics can be done, then God is very much more important and relevant than the Higgs boson. Again, Lawrence Krauss is making a fundamental, even an elementary mistake Philosophically, he thinks there's only one explanation when, in fact, there are two. That's really important. The two explanations at two different levels is simply this. The first explanation is mechanism and law, and it is important. The second explanation is agency, and it is also important. And notice, they don't contradict each other. We're not dealing with a contradiction here at all. So the idea that God and science are incompatible, well, this results from two profound and very simple mistakes. Number one, the nature of God. God is not the God of the gaps. They, the atheists are using the wrong God. And number two, the nature of scientific explanation. It's only on one level. So atheists have no faith, writes Richard Dawkins. And then he wrote a book on what he believes. <laughs> That's astonishing, isn't it? Christopher Hitchens goes from the sublime to the ridiculous when he says, our belief is not a belief and our faith is not a faith. And you're going, really? A grown adult intellectual man actually says that? <laughs> wow! Holy cow! So the question that we have to ask is, just where does this come from? And what's happening here, you see, is it comes from a redefinition of faith that the atheists are telling us. And so many people have bought into this redefinition of faith that is a bogus redefinition of faith by the atheists. We're being brainwashed. <laughs> Quit believing what you're told and think for yourselves is the message here, right? So on a more serious note here, actually, when we turn to Webster's Dictionary, we look up faith. You know, it's okay, yeah, this thing's a noun. Okay, all good and well. Believing where there is no evidence. But that's not faith. 
That's blind faith. <laughs> Ordinary faith. This comes from the Latin word fides. And it has to do with loyalty. It has to do with trust. It's the kind of thing that we all know about in our lives because we use it absolutely every single day. All of us, atheists, scientists, religious people, and the nuns. All of, and I don't mean N-U-N-S, I mean N-O-N-E-S, the largest non-religious group growing of people in the world. Absolutely everybody uses faith, of course. You know why you can trust a bank. However, your bank manager will want to know why he can trust you to give you a $300,000 mortgage loan as well. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. The Western world already knows. I mean, all of us, everybody in the Western world knows evidence-based faith and what it means. We use it all the time. And you're a fool to believe anything without any evidence. Now, when I say I believe that, you would you would logically ask, well, why? What's the basis of your belief, right? That, that's how this works. So what has happened here is very subtly, Dawkins and others has redefined faith as a purely religious word. Only half clever. But so many people have just simply believed what he said. But wait a minute now. He's redefined the word to suit his own atheistic agenda. Let's take a closer look at this. It's not a purely religious word, but he says it be its means believes where there's no evidence, and that's just wrong. That is not the meaning of the word. But everybody believes him because hey, the scientist spoke. Wow, he can't be wrong. Oh, yes. He can, and he is. Now, here's the catch. I've never seen this so well explained as, as when John Lennox explained this, because when I was an atheist, I used to argue against this too. I said, no, 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 hold on. No, don't start putting your religious claptrap onto science. Science does not work with faith. And I was dead wrong. It really does work with faith faith. And here's why we know. Here is why we know. Einstein said, I can't imagine a real scientist without that faith. But what faith was, science, was, was Einstein talking about? He wasn't talking about faith in God here. He didn't believe in a personal God. He wasn't a Christian. The faith that Einstein said every scientist has to have in order to do science is faith in the rational intelligibility of the universe. He meant that conviction that drove Newton and Galileo and Maxwell and so on. They believed the universe was intelligible because they believed in God. Well, if we even leave God out of it, what if we just leave God out of it? You can't start believing in science at all in any manner 
without believing that it can be done. And why do we know science can be done? Is because the universe is logical and orderly. Now, the early scientists for hundreds of years said, well, that shows that there is a rational, orderly, intelligible mind behind it all, and we can begin to appreciate the fantastic creation that mind made by studying out this orderliness. That was how they approached the universe, and that did not stop their science. That actually got them so enthusiastic. Newton was single his whole life. He would work on problems for days at a time and then go to bed. He was absolutely in love with research, and he spent his entire life in it, right? That's because he had that faith in the universe, now, he also had the faith in God, of course. Now, Polkinghorne, John Polkinghorne, the great philosopher, he also brought out something very interesting. He says, physics is powerless to explain its faith in the rational intelligibility of the universe. So real faith, the idea with real faith, here it is. The idea with real faith is it's actually a commitment. And, and it really almost doesn't matter what you're committing to. Uh, either yourself with a personal goal you've set or with other people or a commitment to facts, etc., based on evidence. That's where faith is. This is how we function literally every day. Normal Joes and Janes out there on the street. Yes, fundamentally so. So he mentions that, and this was a good little story too. <laughs> I've got to get to my... Uh, Okay, here we go. He, he talks about his colleagues, one of his colleagues at Oxford, you know, and, and he likes to play Socrates. He likes to ask him a lot of questions, and kind of pester him and make them think through what they think they believe, right? Or or to be able to explain it really, really well. And he says, uh, hey, uh, what do you do science with? And his colleagues, oh, well, you know, I've got this billion dollar machine. And, and then it goes, oh, no, 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 no. I mean, what do you do your science with? And he goes, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I do science with my, and he just about says mind, right? And then he realizes, oh, well, of course, there is no such thing as mind, at least not in his mind. And so he turns around and says, oh, well, I do it with my brain. And Lennox goes, okay, tell me about your brain. What, what's, the, what's the fundamental ground here? Where did the brain come from, you know? And they say, oh, well, you know, um, they say this, this brain of ours, the origin, it is the end product of an unguided process with random mutations. And Lennox asks, oh, really? And you trust it? Now, this is really important. Charles Darwin himself, and I'm going to reread this because this is so vital. His entire philosophy, his entire science led him to this truly singularly important doubt that he never solved. With me, without doubt, always arises whether the convictions of man's minds that have been developed from the minds of lower animals are of any value or are at all trustworthy 
since they just come from lower minds like monkeys through this unguided process of random mutation. He undermines the brain for being rational. Now, this is serious. Let's take a look at this. And I'm going to put this banner up also because this is such an important banner. This is not... Here's the other thing. Now, Lennox was a, a mathematician for, for decades. That's how he made his living. He loved science because of the math. It is not as a religious man that he is now making this part of his argument. Not even close. And he says so. He says, I am speaking to you with my scientific belief and hope. Here is my approach to this very serious problem in our society. And here's what he says. It is atheism that destroys science. Because atheism destroys trust in the very capacity of the human brain or mind to be rational. Now, the powerful, massively important writing of Thomas Nagel. Now, here's one of the most brilliant philosophers, and this guy's not joking around either. He's a scientist, but he comes out and says so. Thomas Nagel says, oh, I, I really, I'm, I'm not only not comfortable with the idea of God, I don't want there to be a God at all. No, forget God. I don't even want that to be. I'm not even looking for it. So we can't, he is as rock-solid atheist as Richard Dawkins ever imagined he was. Let me put it that way, right? Thomas Nagel's new book, I do not yet have this book. I am in the process of getting it, though. I will get this book and read it. Cos the Mind and Cosmos, that's the name of his book. Now, being as rock solid of an atheist and not even wanting to that there is a God. The subtitle of his book is positively mind-blowing. Here's what Richard Dawkins' fellow colleague says in the subtitle, why the neo-Darwinian view of the world is almost certainly false. And he's not kidding. Why, though? Why does he come to this conclusion? Here's why. He explains this. If the mental is not itself merely physical, it cannot therefore be fully explained by the physical science. Evolutionary naturalism implies that we shouldn't take any of our convictions seriously, including the scientific worldview on which evolutionary naturalism depends. The philosophy of atheistic naturalism doesn't merely shoot itself in the foot, it shoots itself in the brain, is how John Lennox concludes. Because... They have destroyed the rationality capability of the human mind itself. Atheism is the false philosophy. Amazing here. Now, let me run over here real quick and let's go to this. 
Again, let's look at another atheist logical view. So let's say we're trotting along through Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. And he begins to talk about exclamation. And this is about page 100 and, oh, I think 130 up into 170 or 80, about the middle of his book. Well, he says, God isn't an exclamation for anything. He can't be used as an exclamation because he would have to be more complex than what is being explained. You logically cannot use something more complex than what you're explaining. Now, let me read it from the God Delusion. Okay? It's on page 176. And I, just, I love how Dawkins puts this. The, the God Delusion here. Some physicists, and this is on page 176, some physicists are known to be religious. Russell Stannard and the Reverend John Polkinghorne are the two British examples I've mentioned. Predictably, they seize upon the improbability of the physical constants, all being tuned in their more or less narrow Goldilocks zones, and suggest that there must be a cosmic intelligence who deliberately did the tuning. I have already dismissed all such suggestions as raising bigger problems than they solve. You notice his sheer arrogance? <laughs> if a religious person simply dismissed Dawkins' arguments because of problems that the religious person saw and never addressed them and actually refuted them, Dawkins would never stop squawking and squealing like a cut little pig, would he? Right? But he thinks he has the authority to dismiss anything I don't like. But it gets better. <laughs> Here's what he continues saying. But what attempts have theists made to reply to my argument. Nothing. How do they cope with the argument that any God capable of designing a universe carefully and foresightfully capable turned to lead to our evolution must be a supremely complex and improbable entity who needs an even bigger explanation than the one he is supposed to provide? That's Richard Dawkins. Enter John Lennox. Here's your rebuttal, Richard Dawkins. And of course, Lennox. Uh, some of uh, Lennox's videos go back 11 years ago, some of them four months ago, some of them five years ago. And I was just grabbing bits and pieces and stuff and trying to make a coherent use of John Lennox's arguments themselves. But listen to this. So, again... We cannot use a more complex subject to explain a less complex subject. It always goes. See, this is Richard Dawkins' reductionism. It must go from simple to complex. Right. So what are we supposed to do? Well, what if we applied the same logic to Richard Dawkins himself? What would happen? Well, I pick up a book, The God Delusion, and it's about 400 pages or so. It's actually 435 pages. It's a pretty big book. Yeah. And it's pretty complex. It's got a lot of pictures and charts, whole bunches of words and stuff. 
So I ask about its origin. And someone comes along and says, well, actually, this book, The God Delusion, was born in the mind of the vastly more complex mind of Richard Dawkins. So, of course, I dismiss that because the explanation of Richard Dawkins' brain is vastly more complex than the thing being explained, his book. Absolutely genius. If that doesn't show you the abject worthlessness of Richard Dawkins' argument against God, I can't tell you where to look. That is so crystal clear. That is one of the most beautiful responses I've ever read, ever. Just take Richard Dawkins' logic and apply it back to himself. Fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. Well, we need to take this seriously because many people have been told by scientists, and this is another banner that, uh, yeah, this is so important. We swallowed this line of thinking, and there's no reason to, because it's not accurate, totally. We've been told and we've accepted that all explanation, in order to be a valid explanation, proceeds from the simple to the complex. Vic Stanger was huge on that in his book uh, on the multiverse that I was looking in the other day. He was talking about that. Well, a lot of it does reduce from the simple to the com from the complex to the simple, yeah. But that's called reductionism, reducing complex things to simpler parts. But it entirely fails where linguistic structure is involved when it carries meaning. In other words, in language. And this is so critical. Think about it. If there is no God, then explanation is ever only from the bottom up by definition. And see, the Greeks, uh, Lucretius, he saw that. His, his comment was in, in his famous poem, De Rerum Natura, on the universe, he said, all is only atoms in the void. That's it, atoms and the void. So, of course, if that's everything, and you're explaining from the bottom up, then every explanation you provide of reality is going to be about atoms and the void. Of course, that makes perfect sense, right? So it follows, and this is what we call materialism, and it hasn't changed at all since the ancient Greek times. However, Socrates... Plato, Aristotle, they all thought there was transcendence. They thought there was a God. And so on that view, if there is a top-down explanation, then we have two approaches that we can take to reality, bottom-up as well as top-down. So our contemporary academy has materialism dominating, and you can't have a top-down explanation because there's no top, according to the contemporary culture that we're in.
And so you're artificially confined to the basic materials of the ancient world, except for one huge problem. Now the physicists have reduced everything to nothing. And now the dipolarization here in our society is absolutely amazing. One explanation says God. The other explanation is all the way over to nothing. <laughs> wow, what a split. You know, I, I could do some videos on nothing if you want. <laughs> There's people out there who think I've been doing videos on nothing for a long time. So I actually am, on a serious note, going to do some videos on this phenomenal concept of nothing. It's quite, a, it's quite an idea. So this polarization is amazing. So, and here is the, here is the one that I've been looking forward to getting to uh, all night long, all day long. This, this is really spectacular. So he tells the story about sitting down at, at Oxford at one of the diners and, and sitting at a table with a, with a good colleague of his, a world-famous biochemist, right? And so they're sitting there and the, he says uh, the biochemist is seriously upset because he found out that John was a pure mathematician. And he said, oh, we're going to have a perfectly lousy evening. He said, we're, it's going to be boring. We don't have anything at all to talk about. And, and Lennox said, uh, well, now, I understand. He's trying to soothe him over, see. And he says, well, I mean, I, I get it why you don't like mathematics. Actually, it is somewhat boring and repetitive. He goes, oh, no, that's not what I'm talking about. He says, uh, it's, I'm just not, it's going to be a very boring evening. Lennox says, well, what I'm doing, though, is because this subject, mathematics, really doesn't turn anybody on, but it's so necessary, is I have kind of taken to looking at the big questions. And his colleague said, what big questions? And Lennox goes, well, you know, Take the universe, for instance. That's a pretty big question. Uh, was it created or did it evolve? And and his colleague immediately said, oh, stop. Just stop. He goes, oh, this is going to be worse than I expected. He goes, oh, my God. He said, let's get something straight here. I am an atheist and I am a reductionist. And you and I have nothing in common. This is going to be an absolutely awful evening. And Lennox says, okay, now, hold on, hold on. He said, now, I don't believe you because I also am a reductionist. I know of three kinds of reductionists. Which kind of reductionist are you? He said, for instance, I'm a mathematician, and I take big, big equations, and I break them down into smaller equations and smaller equations, and then I, I, I solve those equations, and then I put them back together in the big equation. He said, so I'm a reductionist, too. We do have something in common. <laughs> and his colleague said, oh, that is not what I mean. And Lennox goes, yes, I know. I know that's not what you mean. You are an ontological reductionist. What is an ontological reductionist? This is pretty important. Ontological reductionism reduces everything to physics and chemistry. And he said, exactly. So I said, well, why don't we do an experiment? And his colleague goes, what, here at the dinner table? And John goes, well, of course, this is Oxford. <laughs> So he says, okay. And he picks up a menu, right? And he says, 
On it, it said roast chicken. He pointed it out. He said, see, there's roast chicken. And the guy said, yeah, okay, so what's the problem? And Lennox said, well, I don't have a problem, but take a look at this. And he pointed to the word. Look at this. R, O, A, S, and T. These are marks on paper. And he said, well, yes, of course. It means roast. And Lennox said, how do you know? Well, he said, well, I mean, I've learned a language, okay. And it carries meaning. And Lennox said, oh, does it? Now then, here's my question to you. You're a reductionist. Everything in terms of physics and chemistry. And he said, yes, of course, absolutely. So Lennox says, please explain to me the semiotics of those marks on that paper, the way they carry meaning in terms of physics and chemistry of the ink and the paper. And there was a long silence. And his wife, who was sitting next to him, wrote him a note and said, get out of this while you can. <laughs> you know, so this is big. The interesting thing Lennox said is he didn't try to get out of it. He actually got much more honest and revealing and it just shocked Lennox. You go, wow, that was amazing. Here is what his colleague said. He said, John, for 40 years, I've gone into my lab thinking that that could be done. And so often it can't. Then he said, where did you get the argument? And Lennox said, oh, from a Nobel Prize winner. And the, his colleague said, oh, what a relief. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so I said to him, you really think that it can't be done? He said, no. No, he said, because, and here's the point, from a world-class biochemist, because even the power of physics and chemistry cannot grasp language and meaning. And so even those five letters indicate intelligence. Now, this was a biochemist and he studied DNA. So Lennox pushed him just a little bit more. Yeah. And here's what he said. He said, well, I... Oh, I forgot to put the banner up. There's that banner. Even five letters contain intelligence. And he said, well, I believe you study a, I believe you study a word that doesn't have just five letters, but 3.6 billion letters. Uh, the codes for life. And all of them are in proper order and in exact specific sequence. So, uh, what about those? Where does those originate? He said, oh, well, by chance and necessity. What? You believe in chance in the laws of nature? Oh, exactly. But hang on now. Here's the conundrum. Five mere letters. And of course, now the menu was produced by many automatic and blind processes. But with five letters, you inferred instantly 
that there was a mind behind that. Why don't you do that with DNA? Bombshell. And we know why he can't. Because his own science forbids him to. He is a slave to his science, which limits his ability to come to the inference of the best explanation. His own science prevents him from truth, ultimately. What we're talking about here is two worldviews. One starts with mass and energy. Nothing we can leave aside for the moment. So in this one worldview of mass and energy, mind is derivative. And the idea of God is derivative, of course, because there is no God in this worldview. But there's another worldview, and here's how it starts. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things came to be through Him, and without Him nothing came to be that came to be. Do you see the difference? In a materialist worldview, we have mass and energy, and that is what they make as primary. That is the fundamental of the material worldview. Mind is derivative. But in the biblical worldview, the word is primary. Mind, logos, personal intelligence, and it is mass and energy that are the derivative components. So, on this idea, in our information age, what is amazing here is it is now moving to center stage, and the mining of databases has become an absolutely huge industry worldwide, and information takes central stage stage, but what many people have not noticed is that information is not material. It's carried on materials, but by itself, it is not material. And here is one of the biggest ironies of all that is absolutely too good. In the 21st century, Science is now focusing on information, immateriality, information as one of its concepts. That's amazing. And this is separate from their descriptors they use like mathematics which is also obviously immaterial, of course. Now, Lennox says this makes life very, very interesting. This is really amazing when we really stop and think about it because this growing importance of this argument about science versus God uh, or the idea of the science and God cannot mix. They're like oil and water and God being a science stopper. And now the most exciting form of cosmic chemistry, as John Lennox says, uh, 
it realizes that the fascination of, of science is that because the God that invented the atom, the God who invented space and time, who invented your mind, who invented and stamped his image upon your rational soul so that you have infinite value in this universe, the idea is that God and science do mix just like Newton and Kepler and Galileo and Babbage and all of the Boyle and Descartes and Clerk Maxwell, all of those scientists that gave us the phenomenal foundation of which our science has succeeded because of those believers in God. And now it's getting really fundamentally fascinating that the important immaterial has now entered this equation. And science wants it too. Which we say, fundamentally so, let's go. It's about time you woke up and saw the light. <laughs> Fantastically interesting. Now, C.S. Lewis, and he brings up C.S. Lewis. He said this guy was, he was so brilliant at it. Now, I know there's some people who like him and some people who hate him. I get all that. That's good. It's all, it's all good. But what Lewis had is he could look at the light and yet look through the light at the same time, right? And so here was Lewis on this idea of uh, that is so important because of the basis of rationality which we must safeguard. We've done brilliant science, he says. Absolutely phenomenal science. And he wrote this back in the 1940s. I mean, now, between that then and now, we've really motivated, right? He says, but... We've been using our minds to look at the natural world. And my gosh, look at the glorious science that we've had. But we've forgotten the mind that's doing the science. And then he adds, any scientific theory that invalidates human thinking cannot be true. Let me say that again. Any scientific theory that invalidates human thinking cannot be true. And this is why a Thomas Nagel, the atheist philosopher, said that, uh, where is it? Oh, don't tell me I missed it. I did miss it. Sorry. Okay, this is why Thomas Nagel, the atheist philosopher, said neo-Darwinism can't be true. Now, remember, this is the atheist that is as absolutely rock-hardcore as Dawkins is on atheism. He was as rock-hardcore as Christopher Hitchens or Sam Harris or whoever you want to comment. He said this, if you reduce the mental to the physical, then you collapse rationality. There's the problem. All things in physics and chemistry reduce to physics and chemistry. However, by reducing the mental our cognitive faculties to the physical, you collapse rationality. You destroy it. 
Naturalism convinces us not to take any of our ideas seriously, including evolution, atheism, and material naturalism. Naturalism undermines not only the rationality of the mind, but the very thing we need to even conduct an argument or even set up the discussion on the meaning of anything whatsoever. And that is why it is perfectly logical to refuse to accept materialism, regardless of what names others are going to call you, or if they falsely accuse you of being unscientific. That's a perfectly illogical ad hominem scientific excuse. So Lennox was talking about Peter Atkins, and this is so, this is so wonderful. <laughs> I love how he talks about this. Now, Atkins was the famous atheist out of Oxford, right? And so John almost, see, Lennox is almost obnoxious. <laughs> he really, he, he kind of really loves to twit his fellow <laughs> uh, scholars. So he asks him, hey, uh, what created the universe? And Atkins said, uh, mathematics. And Lennox said, I, I was trying hard not to be rude, really, truly. But he said, it was just such an absolutely silly. He said, I just broke out laughing. And Atkins was really offended. He goes, oh, why are you laughing? What's so funny about that? And he goes, oh, Peter, forgive me. He said, I'm a mathematician. And he said, and it's been so long since I've heard something so silly. And he goes, well, how is that silly? The universe being made of mathematics. Why do you laugh at that? That's a scientific suggestion. He said, no, no, Peter, it's really not. And here is why. One and one is two, but that never put two pounds of wealth into your pockets. Wow. Now here we get another glimpse of something. This is deeply profound. Let's take a look at this. It will never on its own put any money in your pocket. Not ever. And the financial crisis was caused by people who thought that just by simply manipulating mathematics on paper, that that created wealth. And that's why we stopped trusting the banks. That's what caused the financial crisis. Because doing mathematics on paper is not making you rich. You can't write down $1 million and go around flaunting and saying, hey, I'm a millionaire because I have a million dollars. See, that's not how it works, folks. It's not. Now, this is really important to get. C.S. Lewis grasped this. He said, you can add one plus one plus one plus one plus one for eternity. But if you don't get one pound first and then get another pound, you're never going to get two pounds. Simply by writing down one plus one plus one and adding them forever. That does not give you any wealth whatsoever or any number of rocks, or houses, or bottles of beer, or books, or shoes, or glasses, or trees. It gives you nothing physical. Doing mathematics won't create anything. Another example is 
Oh, did I put that? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Here's another example that he uses that really, you have to think about this because it's so accurate. Newton's laws of motions have never moved a billiard ball in the entire history of the universe across a billiard table. People with cues do that. See, the laws, what they do is they describe the motion. That's how they work. But they don't cause it. That comes from something else or somewhere else, not from the laws. So Hawking is entirely wrong in saying that because there is a law of gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Well, what would the law of gravity mean if there were no gravity? You see, so the universe, because there is a law of gravity, because there is something, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Einstein was right. Scientists make lousy philosophers. Stephen Hawking was brilliant with his mathematics, genius with his cosmology. But his philosophy completely undermined his atheism because it's utterly redundantly incoherent. If I say X creates Y, it means that you have X here and you will get Y. If I say X creates X, it means that you've got X, you'll get X. And what that means is nonsense remains nonsense even if scientists write it. That is sheer nonsense, what Stephen Hawking said. The universe creates itself? X creates X? That's completely ludicrous. <laughs> that is Stephen Hawking's silly atheism, not science. There's no way around that. So reading that as one of the central arguments of Stephen Hawking's book really, really should concern us. I, I mean, what is our world coming to when our, some of our greatest physicists and scientists just don't even know how to think properly? Don't know how to think properly is the key statement there. So anyway, I've gone on long enough. And I hope you've at least been able to see an interesting insight into a clarification. What, what we're hoping for here is a clarification of this debate, which means that we have to keep our definitions clear, which also means that we also have to begin to do a better logical approach to this from all sides. And so that's what I wanted to share with you. Thanks for joining my Backyard Professor videos. I will be back uh, tomorrow morning. Hey, Sunday morning, 10 in the morning. And I will do a Sunday school with you. And then tomorrow night, don't forget, Dan Vogel Live. I'll be doing his second interview with him. It is on schedule there at the Mormon Discussions, Inc. You can just go click on that Notify Me button and come and join us. We're bound to have some more fun discussing Freemasonry and Mormonism. So in the meantime, remember, be well, do good, have fun. And don't stay up late because you've got to stay up late tomorrow night with Dan Vogel and I. Thank you for all your support. Appreciate everything you guys do. See you tomorrow morning.
I will be talking about the multiverse tomorrow morning. Absolutely.